Let me invite you to stand now as we read God's Word together. I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. You'll find it beginning on page 1279 in your pew Bibles. Let us hear now uh, the Word of God. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us your word, that you have made yourself known, for to know you is life eternal. And so we pray this day that we might draw close to you, even as you draw close to us in speaking your word. May you bring forth your truth from my lips. May ears hear you. May hearts love you. May lives serve you, because you are our God and our Savior in Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So I had to go last week and get an eye exam. You know, it's that time of year again. And uh, as I was sitting there and the attendant wants to go through your entire medical history, she said, and do you take uh, medicine for blood pressure? And I said, no. And she was somewhat surprised. And I said, well, yeah, I do daily. I turn the TV off when the news comes on. (laughs) That's great medication for lowering your blood pressure. But... You know, simply blocking out what 
the noise is in the world and the confusion and the chaos. You know, it doesn't enable us to live faithfully. Just turning down the volume doesn't turn up the ability to live faithfully. That, that faithful Christian living, and this is basically my thesis today, faithful Christian living requires us both to know and then follow, as the writer of Hebrews says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. Now, I switched the title a little. In fact, I had a little back and forth with Gladdy in the office this week. So far and yet so near. Now, we all know so near and yet so far. It, it describes Penn State's efforts yesterday against Illinois, but that's another story. We won't go into that. But, you know, it's kind of a rueful comment on, on an attempt to, you know, achieve an aim and yet just nearly fail. But we want to turn that around today. So far, that is Jesus, our Savior, is so far. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh, who came and died for us. And he is exalted to the right hand of God. So far, and yet as the writer of Hebrews would have us know, so near, so far and yet so near. So let's look at the passage today. I want to talk first of all about four things. The present context here uh, of the writing, the pastoral concern, then, then the pertinent content, and finally the pressing conclusion. So context, concern, content, and conclusion. Some of you are a little more uh, OCD like myself and you want to fill those things in ahead of time. Go ahead and do that. Uh, And we'll spend a little less time on the first two and a lot more on the third and the fourth. So the present context. The writer of Hebrews is writing into a moment in history where the Christian church is facing persecution, active persecution, from the Roman government. The the Neronian, under the Emperor Nero, the the Neronian persecutions have begun to take place. He he rules from around 54 to 68 uh, A.D., And this is the beginning of Roman institutionalized um, oppression. However, there is Jewish opposition all along the way, of course, from the crucifixion of Jesus on up through the ministry of Paul and here into the writing of the book of Hebrews, maybe as late as 70, 75 uh, AD. Jerusalem probably has not fallen or would have gotten mentioned, but we can date this book as late as 70. So, The Greco-Roman worldview, whether it has institutional power or not, is an extremely oppressive uh, force. The notion of the resurrection is laughed aside. You recall Paul on encountering the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. They they said, what is he babbling about? You know, what is he talking about? And, and they ridiculed him because he was preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So So all of these things kind of combine active institutional persecution religious persecution on the part of the Jews, societal, philosophical, you might say, worldview persecution, or at least disdain on the part of the larger Greco-Roman world. And then even within the church to whom the writer is addressing these words, there is kind of a, uh, it was a lot better when we had something we could put our hands on. There were sacrifices to be made. There were priests with vestments. There were ceremonies. There were high holy days. And, And all of that seems in some ways perhaps more attractive than, than a Jesus who doesn't seem to be around. So that's, that's kind of the, the present context of the letter as he writes it. So what's his concern? What's the pastoral concern? Well, he wants to strengthen his hearers, his readers. He, he wants to encourage them who are facing these times of trial 
and at the same time to, to warn them against falling away. That's a very real issue. If you will, and you have your Bibles, turn back just a couple pages to, to chapter 6. Chapter 6, he has, you might say, kind of introduced the context of Jesus as high priest. priest talks about how this is, this, is the, this is the chewable stuff, folks. This, this isn't the cream of wheat. This is the chewable. We're going to leave the elementary stuff behind. And beginning with verse 4, as he talks about the need to move forward, it is impossible, he says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift that have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Down to verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And then verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit what? Inherit the promises. So that's, that's sort of the beginning of this section, 6, 7, 8, 9, even 10. And so I'm going to beg you to turn with me to chapter 10. Flip ahead of our present passage. Again, we're, we're sort of sketching the pastoral concern. We've seen one end of it there. In chapter 10, verses 28 through 31, he returns to that same theme. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then he writes words of encouragement, as he did back in chapter 6. And he says this in verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is and there's that word again, promised. He is cautioning his hearers that, that neither the persecution or the pressure of the world around them nor their own inner kind of longings should lead them away from their devotion to Jesus. And, and he has said both in 6 and here again in 10, yeah, I know you guys are there. Don't leave it. Stay there in the face of persecutions, trial, oppression, even discouragement in a personal sense. Do not abandon your hope so that you may inherit the promises. The, the idea of inheriting promises is the concern of this, you might say, the entire book. So, so let's move on then to the content of this particular sec- section. Again, at the end of chapter 6, he raises the historical example of Abraham who, believing God's promises, continues in them. 
Abram, having patiently waited, verse 15 of 6, obtains the promise. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, the writer is continually referring back to Psalm 110, verse 4, which we read in this context. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's, that's the oath. The Lord has sworn. That's the oath and the promise. There will be this blessing to Abraham unfolded. And then he says, we have this hope, verse 19, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where now Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our half, have, behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So God's promises to his people are anchored in Jesus, who, as the writer describes, is a priest, a high priest, and this phrase comes up numbers of times, after the order of Melchizedek. And so he uses chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, just prior to our portion, to, to compare Jesus to Melchizedek. And, and he, makes, he makes a couple of points which are important for the immediate text. One is that Melchizedek, as a historical figure, basically just appears for a moment and then disappears. And unlike characters in, in the main in ancient writings, there's no genealogy. He's not the son of the son of the son of the son of the father of... There's no genealogy. He doesn't, he doesn't have a beginning in that sense. There's nobody before him. And, and there is not... He is the father of... So there, there's no genealogy after him. So, so he is a a solitary, unique figure, Melchizedek. He's also called, back in Genesis 14, he's called a priest of the Most High God. And he is also, he is the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. He is the king of Salem, or Shalom, which is, in Hebrew, peace. So he's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, no genealogy. You know, he comes from where? appears and disappears. So that is an image, a symbol of a high priest who lives forever. That's the point of the author of Hebrews focusing on Melchizedek. One, he's a priest, high priest, by God's appointment, who endures forever. But the second thing is, he blesses Abraham. Now, every Jew would have claimed Father Abraham, the head of the race. He's the most important figure, and and everybody from him looks back to Father Abraham. And the writer makes the point, as we can see, verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, the father, gave a tenth of the spoils. And then he makes this point. Look, one of Abraham's children, if you will, the Levites, well, not Abraham's children, but, but, but Aaron's children, technically, but, but they're all children of Abraham. Aaron's sons, Levites, some of whom became priests, and they were entitled, in fact, commanded in the law to take tithes from their brothers. In other words, they were set above the rest of the people for the purpose of God's worship, and they were to receive tithes. And yet he said, now think about that for a minute. If, if Israelites paid tithes to Levites who are children of Abraham, how in the world does Abraham pay a tithe to Melchizedek? This Melchizedek must be somebody important. 
And he makes the point as we get to our passage in verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So Melchizedek is above Abraham and therefore above Aaron, above Levi, above all the high priests that have served in that office since the establishment of the Jewish nation. That's his point. And then he compares Jesus to Melchizedek through verses 21, describing how Jesus came not from the order or the family of Aaron and Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't a Levite. He was from Judah. He is of a different order entirely. Not an earthly priest appointed because he had the right name, but a heavenly priest after the order of Melchizedek who is made high priest, back to 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And verse 22 is absolutely pivotal to, to the rest of the passage. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So, Jesus is better than anything y'all got going, he says to them. He is infinitely preferable to anything you would have known. And he's preferable or superior, not just preferable, but superior on the basis of the oath of God, on, on the basis of his action as guarantor, and then his role as priest. I want to look at those three things, the oath, the guarantor, and the priest with you as we go through the passage. So, again, God has sworn and will not change his mind. That's the oath. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. In other words, God has the power when he speaks. In the beginning was the word, and the word was flesh. That's his word incarnate. But back in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he speaks, and things come into existence. Things are because God says them. They have being because God speaks, and his word creates the reality of which he speaks. So, you are a priest forever is the statement of God. Jesus is thus high priest appointed by oath, not by human descent. And forever, forever, he is reliable. God has sworn and will not change his mind. Nothing will change about Jesus' high priesthood for his people. So he says in verse 23, the former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he, continue, he continues forever. So the fact of his being high priest, being appointed to that by oath of God, means that he is the guarantor of a better covenant. Now the word better occurs over and over in the book of Hebrews. It begins right at the beginning where he says in, in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus has a better name than the angels. There was, in, in some Jewish thinking, and certainly in the larger religious arena in which this book is written, there was a, I'm not going to say adoration of angels, 
but an affirmation of angels, their power, their place, the, the role that they had in God's work in the world. And so angels were sort of in between people and God. So, you know, if you wanted to get to God, you kind of had to work through the angels or the angels had to work through you. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, Jesus has a better name. What's his name? He is the son of God. He is the one who was promised. And, and then as we have seen both in chapter 6 and chapter 10, the concern that he has that some of the people would, would wander away, would leave that reality of Jesus as high priest, leads him to say, no, no, don't, don't go back to what was inferior. In Christ, you have a better hope, a hope that is grounded in the promise of God, in the oath of God. You have a better covenant. And he speaks more of that you know, in, in chapters 9 and 10. We have a better covenant, and a covenant that, that God himself does. You have better promises. Christ, once for all offering here, as he says, is a better sacrifice. And while in this persecution some may have lost property and possessions, they have a better possession because their eyes are, are fixed on a better country. We see that in chapter 11. You know, if they'd have been citizens of this world they would have taken the things of this world but they were citizens of a better country and finally of course if if they are called to lay down their lives for the name of jesus they are promised a better life in chapter 12 you have a better life chapter 11 verse 35 and and then he says the blood of jesus cries out it has something better to say than the blood of abel so all of these betters are part of what it means that jesus is the high priest now, I want to say two things here, one from the text and one just sort of off the cuff. So there is a covenant, the guarantor of a better covenant, and he's going to describe that covenant, as I say, at length. But a covenant had two senses in, in the book of Hebrews and in the larger world. And typically, more commonly, a covenant was an agreement between two parties. You might think of kings making a peace. Okay, I'm going to do this, and you're going to do this, and I'll keep this arrangement, and you'll keep that arrangement. And so, yeah, let's put it down on paper. This is our agreement together. This is the covenant that we signed. But, but in the case of Jesus, there's no agreement between us and God. God makes that covenant, and he, he enters into it and pledges himself to be our God solely on the basis of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Clear back, you know, after the account in Genesis 14 with Abraham and Melchizedek, you have in 15 this image of animals being offered in sacrifice. Abraham is talking to God, and only God goes down between the animal halves, a smoking pot and a torch. God alone makes this covenant. And so it is the better covenant because the Lord himself has made it and he has sworn and will never change his mind. So unlike an old covenant where you know, one of the parties may break faith with the terms of the agreement, it's not possible for God to break faith with himself. He will not violate, if you will, the terms of this covenant. You are a priest forever. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So he's the guarantor of this better covenant. And in, in the Greek, the word guarantor is a person who would pledge something will be. And we think maybe perhaps of a bail bondsman today. You know, the, the accused has to show up in court. The bail bondsman puts up the money that says he'll be there. He'll be there. Here's, here's the money uh, of bail. So 
something will be is what I'm guaranteeing. But Jesus as guarantor in his death on the cross makes real what is future but now present. It's not just something that will happen in the future. It is something that is present now even though we don't see it. And so the the covenant agreement that Jesus guarantees, his death on the cross establishes that not only in, in the past and not only as a promise for the future, but in the present it is real that he is our high priest. And as he goes on to say, he always lives, verse 25, to make intercession for those who come to him. He is their high priest. Now, just a, a word on, on the side here. This could all be seen as, oh, this is great. This is just little fine, you know, arguments or modifications or applications of an ancient Jewish figure. And yeah, you Christians have the idea too. But recognize, if, and I use this as a conditional, if we live in a world created by God, if in fact he is not only the creator, but the judge, he is the ultimate reality, then the whole notion of high priest becomes not just a historical curiosity or a theological oddity. It becomes an absolutely foundational necessity for our lives as beings in this created world. We, we do not escape the reality of God, the reality of judgment, the reality of his demands on our lives because we deny that he exists. This world being made by him, we are his creatures, we are responsible, we are accountable to him, and that reality doesn't change regardless of your worldview or your religious commitment or lack thereof. That reality is in place and settled. And that being so, how do we relate to this holy, transcendent creator God? How are, how are we able to enter relationship with him? That becomes a fundamental issue for all humankind. God is real. You're not him. How do you relate to him? And that's the point of the writer of Hebrews. Jesus as a high priest is the one who enables us to have a relationship with ultimate reality, with, with the creator God. And as John says, you know, in his gospel, this is eternal life, the words of Jesus. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So as high priest, we want to look just here quickly at him and, and notice that he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. This, this is his character. Now, he always lives, says verse 25, he always lives so, so that we know he, he always has the power that he always had. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he always lives and he can always intercede for his people. And that, that intercession is one that comes out of his knowledge of us. He was tempted in every way as we are tempted, says the scriptures, yet without sin. So he knows our needs. He, he is not oblivious to the reality of living life on this earth. Unlike the angels, Jesus knows what life here is like. And, and he knows exactly what we need to live in this world. 
And because he has this sinless character, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, he, he is wholly acceptable to God, and his sacrifice is totally effective for us. He is the perfect sacrifice. In fact, in, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the priest who offers the sacrifice. He's the altar on whom the sacrifices, or on which the sacrifice is offered. And he is the curtain w- which is separated, torn, in order to allow the worshiper to come into the very presence of God. He is all of these things. And again, they are not just curiosities in, in the Jewish theology or in the Christian understanding. They are fundamentally necessary, essential realities for you and me to have a relationship with the holy, transcendent creator God. So this is what the writer of the book wants his readers, his hearers to know. This Jesus, this Jesus is the perfect offering. Look with me at 27 and 28. Unlike the priests who offer sacrifices for their own sin, which they needed to do, and then for the people, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And now this is the contrast we can perhaps read past too quickly. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. You descended from Levi, that's the law. But the priesthood of Jesus is the result of an oath, which came later than the law and appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So while human priests had to offer the sacrifice of bulls and goats and rams and sheep for their own sins before they could offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, Jesus offered himself up the perfect sacrifice once for all. And everything needed in coming to God is in Christ. Again, priest, sacrifice, altar, curtain. It's all there in Christ. One commentator has this to say about, you might say, this entire passage. He describes the closing verses as this, quote, a hymn to the high priest as though an outburst of the joy of humanity which has at last found the high priest qualified to understand its weaknesses and to come to its aid. So far above us and so near to us. Himself in need of no cleansing and able to cleanse and expiate all our guilt. So far above us and so near to us. So that takes me to my fourth point, the pressing conclusion. So if this is true, if Jesus is what the passage declares, how should we respond? How should we respond? Well, there's two things, just two quick things. One, we have to trust this word. We have to hear the word of God and take it all in. Do you believe what the scripture has to say about Jesus, the high priest. This is a sort of an inane illustration, but I was thinking of let's make a deal. And somebody's got you know, a little stack of cash here, and the MC says, okay, you can keep what you've got, or you can trade it for what's behind door number one, door number two, door number three. All right? Well, Jesus is the pile of cash. Jesus is what the writer's 
readers, you and I have, we have this right in front of us in all of his glory and all of his reality and all of his perfection and all of his accessibility. That's what we have. What would have to be behind door number one or door number two or door number three for you to trade? Why would you trade? And this is the appeal of the author to his readers. Why would you trade anything out there but what you have in Jesus? He is our all in all. And so we have to trust this word that he is what he says he is. And then and we have to appropriate his work. I, I was delighted. Uh, there must be a Holy Spirit. That's all I can say, Matt. There must be a Holy Spirit. But our Sunday school lesson this morning was about the work of the Spirit in interceding for us as believers. You know, with, with, with groans too deep for words. The Holy Spirit knows what we need and brings those needs to the Father in accordance with his will. And so the writer says, look, it wasn't just when, when you were saved, you know, you came to know Jesus and now your future is secure. It wasn't just then that his salvation is available. But it's in every moment. Whether, whether it's a moment when we're overcome by fear, if it's a moment when, when our sins have tripped us up and we think I was never going to do that again and I just can't stop. You know, maybe it's just outright disobedience. We knew we shouldn't have or we knew we should have and we did it anyhow or refused to do it. Jesus is there here now in those moments. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe, you know, we just can't get the energy up. You know, COVID's worn us out and frankly, I'm just tired. Yeah, and can you draw near to Jesus with that? Can he grant you the strength and and the wisdom to move through that? And then, of course, ultimately, there is this issue that he raised in chapter 6 and returns to intent of apostasy, of, of, of literally turning away from the faith which is in Jesus. Even that can be countered by the truth of the gospel if we come near. We think of the father whose, whose son, epileptic, had demons throwing him in the fire. And, and when Jesus says, what can I do? He says, if you can, heal him. And he says, if I can? Don't you believe? And the father says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. We may, we may have that prayer, and we can bring it to Jesus through the power of the Spirit because he is the high priest who welcomes us. <sighs> I just want to share... Some of you know Laura's stories, hymn, Blessings. I'm going to read a couple verses of this as my close. Laura's story writes, or sings, We pray for blessings, we pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? See, Jesus, our great high priest, knows our need and he ever lives to intercede for us. So believe him 
and draw near to him and live into and out of your salvation. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how we rejoice in this great salvation that has come to us. Forgive us in our doubts. Forgive us in our fears. Forgive us, Lord, in our apathy. You do make intercession. You meet our every need. And so we pray, whatever the need of this day and whatever the need of this moment in our lives, that we might turn to you in faith and receive the help that you offer and rejoice in the good news of the gospel that we indeed have a high priest who knows our need and invites us to draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help exactly in our time of need. Lord, it's in his name that we pray and in his name we rejoice. Amen.